Good morning. Hola. Well, most of 117 of us returned last night from our annual high school mission trip to Mexico, and uh, we are all a little sleep-deprived and a little sore and very grateful for toilets and, uh, and water we can drink and showers and beds of our own. But as uh, is always the case, it was just a remarkable thing what God did there, uh, down in Mexico with your kids. We, um, we built seven houses for seven families in, uh, in four days. And that was great, but equally important, we, we built 117 stronger disciples for Jesus, both young and old. And I just, I, I just have to tell you how proud I am of those kids how proud you would be of those kids and how proud I am of the, the parents and the leaders that went with them. They are just among the best that we have to offer. Are there any uh, Mexico folks that are here this morning that are back and braved the early morning hour? One of you over there. Good for you, Mason. Well done. <laughs> even a young person. I didn't even know it was possible for you to get up this morning. <laughs> you get... What's... And up there. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't want to miss you. Good job, kids. It was just a great great time. You'll hear more about it next week. I know you'll want to hear and be here and we'll have all 117 up the, here arrayed across the, uh, the stage and, and they will thank you for your prayers and they will tell you the way that the, the Lord changed them and, and you'll, you're going to be proud of them too, I promise. I'm proud of something else too. Last year, you will recall, I told you the story about the door from hell. Remember the door that I installed? It took me seven hours to install this demon-possessed door. I had to rebuild the wall twice. I kicked buckets all across the floor. I cursed in tongues. I was out to redeem myself this year. We showed up at the job site at 9 o'clock on Wednesday morning. By 10.05, I had installed not only the door, but two windows. And here is the picture... And to you mockers, I therefore say, ha, and fie upon you. (laughs) I've actually had a lot of travel lately. I can't, I don't know if there's anything, such thing as jet lag north to south, but between the west and east and north and south, I'm still trying to get my bearings. Two and a half weeks ago, we returned from Israel and we haven't talked a lot about that. I want to take us back there. One of our, one of our stops in Israel was Bethlehem. We always go to Bethlehem, but this time we stayed overnight, which is not as easy to do as it used to be. Uh, and, and the reason it's not as easy to do, to visit and to stay overnight in, uh, in Bethlehem is because of this. Th- this is the security wall that surrounds Bethlehem. In fact, it's uh, nearly 400 miles when it is completed of this will run along the west side of the Palestinian territories that separates Palestine from, um, from Israel. And this security wall, or the separation wall, as it is called, is very controversial. You talk to Israelis and they will say that since the wall began to be built in 2000, uh, suicide bombings have plummeted. And you can understand why they would be grateful for that. But you talk to the people on the other side of the wall, as we did when we were in Bethlehem, and they will tell you that this it's a source of great frustration 
Because this wall, we heard from Christians, by the way, Arab Christians, it's not an oxymoron, Arab Christians, we heard from them in Bethlehem who said that this wall has stopped them from being able to get to family, has separated them from generations long held lands, from their jobs, from their services. And so it is a source of great pain and frustration to them, even anger. They will tell you that it feels like they are in prison. There's one village, for instance, a village called Al-Walaja, which when the wall is done, will be completely encircled by a 25-foot concrete wall. This is a picture of Al-Walaja, completely encircled. And a wall uh, that, if you can imagine as members of that community, this wall is being built to contain them, to keep them inside, and it is a, a source of great frustration for them. Now, I want you to imagine something that is even more bizarre than this. Imagine a village that builds a wall to enclose itself. Imagine a, a village, a community, that, that builds a wall that encircles them and traps them inside and makes it difficult for their own people to move into the world. It sounds crazy, right? That is exactly what American churches are doing. That is exactly what most American churches have done. We have erected invisible separation barriers around our sanctuaries and around our Sunday school classes and around our Bible studies and around our youth groups, not so much to keep people out, but to keep ourselves in, to confine our religious activities to our own private Christian ghetto. We are happy to worship and and fellowship and, and learn about Jesus privately. But the idea of carrying this gospel, this story of Jesus, beyond our walls, beyond our barrier, and into the rest of the world, well, it strikes us as frightening or intrusive or imperialistic or something. I'm pleased to say I don't believe we are that kind of a church. I don't think Chapel Hill is that kind of a church. We encourage our people to see this as a, as a base camp or a training camp where you are going to be equipped and provisioned to be sent back out into the world to do what God has called us to do, to live out the faith in Jesus that we claim at least that we possess. I think that's who we are. And still, I'll bet that there are many here this morning who who would get squeamish about the idea of actually mentioning the name of Jesus in family gatherings, or on the job site, or in our school, or on the streets. We would, we would feel uncomfortable even saying the name of Jesus. And I think there are many here who would actually, in truth, be more comfortable with the idea of building a separation barrier around our Christian faith in order to keep it private. Isn't that so? Even though the teaching and the example and the life of Jesus suggests something entirely opposite. For he was utterly engaged with his community. So when you, when you hear this story, when you picture that wall, when you, when you apply this, honestly, does it apply for you? If you think about your own Christian faith and, and your own Christian witness, if you, Think about the way that you live your Christian life. How much of it is it confined within the walls of this beautiful ghetto? As we continue on our 90-day challenge, and I gotta pause, how are we doing? Are you, how many are still hanging in there? 
You know, it's just, I shouldn't be surprised. You guys always rise to the challenge. But this has been such a blessing to me. And I continue to hear from you of the way that this has touched you, of, of how you like to read ahead. I think you like knowing where I'm going. I think you like to try to figure me out before I preach the sermon. But it's been such a blessing to hear back from how many of you have said that this has just really uh, touched your life. So we are asking ourselves, okay, what's next for us as a church? And we'll, we'll let you know when we get that figured out. But it has been good to see that. So... This week we're coming to the end of the Gospel of Mark, right? As we and then into into Luke. By the way, the uh, the chapters are wrong in uh, in your bulletin. I believe next week we start at chapter six, six through twelve, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, twelve. Yeah, six through twelve next, starting tomorrow. But this week we come to the end of Mark's Gospel, and we are reintroduced to something we heard in Matthew's Gospel, something that we're more familiar with from Matthew. It's Jesus' parting shot to his disciples. Remember. Uh, it's known in Matthew 28 as what? Yeah, the Great Commission. And now we come to Mark's version of the Great Commission. Now, Mark is always pithy. I like Mark. He's a bullet point kind of a guy. You know, I think he had a little ADD going for him. It's just moving. So, uh, I, I, it's my namesake, you know. So, you know, the, the poems of Luke and the flowers and woo, yeah, but Mark, get right to the action. So, I really like this guy. And Mark gets right to it. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 16, verse 15, as we turn to our kind of core text for this morning. Verse 15 says, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Notice not just the nations, all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Boom. That's it. This is, this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for your different gospel stories that give us different uh, views, different angles on, on the message that has changed creation. And we pray that because we hear it today, we will do our part to change your creation and present salvation to it. In Jesus' name, amen. The very first word in Mark's great commission is the same word, same Greek form that we find it in Matthew's great commission. What is that word? Go. Yeah, say it again. And as I've told you before, that is not a very good English translation, actually. Remember what form of word is this go in Greek? Remember? Come on, you English. It's a, it's a participle. What is a participle? I-N-G, an ing word. It's an ing word. So this go really ought to be as you're going or on your way, as you're going along your way. That's how this really ought to be translated. And you might say this is, here we go again, one of Pastor Mark's goofy grammatical obsessions. But this really matters, I think. It is significant. If, if go is the command, just that way, if go, then that means that wherever we are, What? We probably have to be someplace else, right? Wherever we are, we have to be somewhere else. So go might mean then leaving everything we know, everything we love, every relationship we have, and sailing off to a foreign land. Or maybe go means getting out on a street corner and preaching the gospel. I'll never forget, a few summers ago, Cindy and Cooper and I went to Hoover Dam. And then on the way back from Hoover Dam, we stopped at, uh, in Las Vegas just to kind of check things out. <laughs> I 
honestly, I found it pretty awful. I, I found it pretty disturbing. Um, you're, you, 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 you couldn't even walk along the streets without having people step forward and they're, remember, slapping the cards and they hand these cards to you and they're advertisement cards that have pictures of naked women on them. And, and it, it's just a, it's a sordid environment. I wish you could have seen my wife. She was like a mother panther. She was leading the way, kind of a phalanx, you know, separating the crowds and protecting her men as she marched. No one dared hand us anything or she was going to take, take them out. So it was pretty cool. At one point we crossed the street and we came to a street corner preacher. He had a bullhorn and he was shouting kind of at the top of his lungs, uh, a hellfire and damnation type message. And I remember at first feeling off-put by it. I, 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 didn't, I didn't like it very well. I was uncomfortable with it. And then I thought to myself, well, at least he's doing something. What am I doing to bring light to this place of darkness? What am I doing to bring the light of Christ to this place that has so much darkness other than just feeling uncomfortable and disgusted? It reminds me of something that Dwight L. Moody once said. Moody was the 19th century equivalent of Billy Graham. In fact, he started the modern-day revivalist movement in in many ways. Uh, He's the guy I did my PhD on. And Moody was kind of a controversial figure at the time. And uh, he was approached by someone one time who was really very critical of his, um, of his methods, of the way he shared the gospel. Here was what Moody replied. He said, you know, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. <laughs> Isn't that good? Still, if go means leaving everything you know and sailing away to a foreign land or, or preaching on some street corner of Gig Harbor, that can be pretty terrifying, can't it? Some of us are called to that. There might be even some here who, tell me, if, you know, if you've ever felt called either now or in the future, you sense a call to, to go on to the mission field, I'd, I'd like to see your hands. How many of you have felt that call? All right, take a look. All right. There are some of you who also feel pretty comfortable sharing Christ with people. You can talk with even strangers uh, about Jesus, and evangelism seems to come naturally. Anyone who feels like they have that gift, the ability to share. Okay, great. When I was on this trip with Israel, one of our guys that went with us is a guy named Gordy Wheeler. He is the most, I don't even know if he knows it, but he's the most natural evangelist that I have seen in a long time. In Amsterdam, in an airport where I was hiding, remember I told you I'm a pagan traveler and I'm still repenting, but he was, he was standing in line at the airport and he struck up a conversation and I listened. By the time he was done moving their way towards the, the front of the line, he was talking to two people about Jesus in Amsterdam for crying out loud. So there are people who have that gifts, that, that gift, but not all of us have that kind of gift. Nevertheless, the word go is attached to the command of Jesus. Now, the command form is make disciples. The command of Jesus is to make disciples, and go is attached to that. So what do we do with that? The first thing we do is we interpret it correctly. If the actual word means as you are going, then don't you see how that changes things for us? 
it makes us a little less terrifying at least. If Jesus is saying, as you are living your life, as you are on your way, as you are traveling and working and vacationing and recreating in the relationships that you already have, the people you already know, those whom you already love, as you are going along, look for ways to share your love of Jesus, what Jesus has done with you, for you, with those whom you love. That's exactly what we see happening in the early chapters of Luke, if you've been following along in our 90-day challenge this last week. For instance, in Luke chapter 2, remember this story. It's the only story that we have of Jesus as a boy. Remember this? And it's so vivid for me because we only weeks ago we're sitting on the stairs of the temple that are uh, undoubtedly the stairs that Jesus walked up when he was a boy on the way to the temple. And so we read this account. The, the family was on a religious vacation. That's what they did. They were coming to Jerusalem, as all good Jewish families within a certain distance did. They were coming for the festival of Passover. This is a big deal. Passover is the remembrance of when God led the people out of bondage in Egypt, right? So they come for the Passover, and then when the Passover was over, they headed home. They got back into the caravan. They always traveled in caravans because it was safer. It avoided the robbers that we hear about in parables like the Good Samaritan, for instance. So they started back. It's a 120-mile walk from Jerusalem to Nazareth. That's a long walk. So they started out, and, um, and the way they traveled the, in those days, the men would walk with the men, and the women and the children would walk together with each other. So they were separated in, in the journey. And um, Jesus, as a 12-year-old, was kind of a teenager. I mean, he, he was in between. So Mary assumed that Jesus was walking with his father. Joseph assumed that Jesus was walking with Mary. They get one day out, they set up camp, and they realize, no Jesus. How many of you have ever lost your kid? How many ever wanted to lose your kid for, you know... A day or three. So they turn around and they, they've, they've walked one mile. They have to, I mean, one day. They have to turn around, walk another day back. Then when they arrive the second day, they're, they're tired, so they have to sleep. They get up the next morning. The third day, they go looking for Jesus. So three days their boy's been missing. And, of course, they hear rumblings and rumors, and they make their way to the temple. And there they find 12-year-old Jesus seated with the religious leaders of the time asking incredible questions, and, and we are told that they marveled at this young man at the age of, of 12. I don't know that we could say that Jesus was making disciples at that time, but as he described it, why did you not expect that I would be about my father's business? So here was this 12-year-old, a teenager, mind you, Mason, and the rest of you teens, a teenager on a family vacation who still uses this as an opportunity to talk about faith and life and God. It's a pretty remarkable story. We see it again in Luke chapter 4. Now Jesus is a man and he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. It was on the Sabbath and so Jesus being a good Jewish boy, he does what every Jewish boy did. He went to synagogue. Remember, this is the crowd he grew up with. This is his family. Here are his playmates that are now sitting there in front of him. Here are the old women who changed his diapers when he was a baby and babysat for Mary when she needed to get away. 
They're the ones that are sitting there. But Jesus has already launched his ministry in Capernaum. He's doing these incredible miracles, incredible teachings. And the, the, the rumors are back. And so the folks in the hometown kind of want him to put on a dog and pony show for them. So they are ready and eager. And so they invite Jesus to be the, the, the preacher for the day, which was common, a, a visiting rabbi. So he takes out the, the, gospel, the, the gospel, really it is called the gospel of the Old Testament, the gospel of Isaiah. And he reads an account that talks about the coming of a Jewish Messiah, a Savior who would one day be sent by God to save the world and make all things right. And Jesus rolls the scroll back up and he says he sat down very dramatically because that's what teachers did. And he says to them, today this reading has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus says to the women who changed his diapers, to the playmates he played with for all his life, he said, that Messiah that you've been waiting for, I am he. It didn't turn out real well for Jesus, as we know, reading on into the story, you know. But the fact is that it's not often easy to share our faith with family and friends. And yet Jesus, on his way, in synagogue, with family, with his friends, he shared his faith. He shared his life. In the very next chapter, we see it going on again. Now Jesus is walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he calls his first disciples. And he's walking through the marketplaces of Capernaum. And so he calls four disciples to leave their boats. He calls one disciple from from the tax booth to, to follow him as he was going. And we read of the story that Pastor Larry alluded to where a man is lowered down through a hole that his friends cut in the roof. How would you like to be that homeowner? Thank you very much. Lowered down through a hole that they cut in the roof. That was pro- It was Simon's house. So Jesus did a lot of his teaching, his ministry, right in the homes of his friends there and in Bethany and other places. As he was going, as he was eating, as they were partying, Jesus was doing his thing. The point is, and you see this if you, if you read with eyes to see this, Jesus' ministry took place in everyday life. And this is actually kind of remarkable. If you really are the Messiah, where would you expect the Messiah to be holding forth? Where would you expect the Jewish Messiah in first century Israel to be holding forth? Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem was the center of the religious universe as far as the Jews concerned. If you really are the Messiah, you ought to come, ensconce yourself in the temple, and go at it. But what's interesting is if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would have no idea that Jesus ever visited the, uh, the city of Jerusalem during his adult ministry, except for the one time when he went to, went to the cross. John tells us more, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, as far as they are concerned, his disciple-making took place in Galilee. His disciple-making took place in Capernaum, on the streets, and the hillside. Yes, in the synagogue, but also in the hillsides, and in the fields, and in the homes, and on the boats, in everyday life, in ordinary podunk Galilee, as Jesus was on his way. Do you get my point? Do you get my point? Jesus was... Living his life and his faith and his ministry in everyday life. And then he commands us to do the same. Now, it can still be intimidating. All you got to do is look at what happened in the Nazareth story. But when you understand that obeying Jesus' command to go means living your ordinary life intentionally. That's what this means. Living your ordinary life on purpose. Looking for opportunities in the course of your day to make disciples for Christ. 
when you understand that, it changes your approach to life. Or to uh, return to my original illustration, when we begin to do that, it begins to take a sledgehammer to that wall that we have built up around our spiritual life and the rest of our world. We begin to see the, the cracks and the chips falling out as we just take aim at that wall and say, no, there's not going to be a wall, a barrier between my religious life, my spiritual life, and the rest of my life. Let me give you some examples. Cindy, who has really been engaging in this study with me on what it means to make disciples, decided one starting point would be to engage more intentionally with the people that serve us, like the cashiers at the grocery store. So she, one day, as she was going through the cash, uh, through the cash register, she, she asked the, the clerk, how are you doing? And, and he replied, and then she began to engage him in that conversation. He was apparently so surprised that any customer would actually care that he really began to enter into this conversation with Cindy. The problem was he got distracted and he started running products twice through the scanner. <laughs> so Cindy's trying to watch his eyes so she stays engaged while keeping an eye on the screen to see how much she was being overcharged. Disciple making is costly. I'm just going to tell you that. <laughs> very, very, very costly. One mother in our church uh, decided to approach her high school son uh, about the idea of doing the 90-day challenge with, with, with her. This has been something that's been really rewarding for Cooper and me. And uh, so she came to her high school son and said, would you like to do this? And his response was very disturbing. He said, why should I read the Bible? You don't. Well, she did actually, every day. But she read it in her bedroom. Her son never saw her reading the word. So he didn't understand why suddenly she would be interested in asking him to do so. Now I remember something Pastor Jeremy Vaccaro told us about the quiet witness of his own mother. Do you remember this story? He said one of the ways, most effective ways his mom witnessed to him was every morning when he got up, he found her already there at the kitchen table studying God's word before all of the family was up. One uh, and it, I told you recently about a real estate developer who decided to start a, a Bible study uh, called Acre, Acknowledging Christ in Real Estate, and with the rest of his buddies. They've been going at it for six weeks now, studying through the, the gospel of, of Mark. I got a young mom that I know about in this church who uses her read times at the library, her, her story times at the library to make contact, connections with other young women. And then as a result, she invites these young moms to her house for coffee. I know of a young man who intentionally joined the YMCA because he didn't think he had enough non-Christian friends. So he joined the Y, goes to classes for the purpose of making non-Christian relationships. And he extends the time in order to have coffee with them afterwards. And I talked recently with a firefighter. He and a couple, another couple of Christians started a Christian firefighter uh, couples dinner group. And the word began to get out among their friends who weren't believers, said, could we come and be a part of that? And they said, sure. The, the, the bottom line is that two of their non-Christian firefighting friends gave their lives to Christ as a result of this, of this dinner. This is living on the way. This is living our faith along the way. And, and when you hear those stories, can't you hear the chunks being knocked out of that, that awful separation wall that goes up between our spiritual life and the rest of the world? 
As we are going, as they are going on their way in home and in work and in recreation, they are looking for the opportunity along the way to share the news, the best news they've ever heard, that God loves them, that God came on a rescue mission for him, that God has saved them and launched them on a life that is eternal and thriving. Who wouldn't love that news? Are we, as you are going, make disciples? This is the reason I love going on the Mexico trip. Several folks on the trip asked me why I went this year since I didn't have any kids in the group. And as I wrote in the family life letter, I said, I've got 90 kids in this group. These are all my kids. And the opportunity to work alongside these young people and to tease with them and to sing with them and to laugh with them and come up with goofy stories that we repeat every time we drive the van together to the job site and to be boisterous together, that is precious to me. When we gathered at the circle at the end of the trip, as we always do, several kids said the same thing when it was my turn. They said the same thing about me. They said, before, I only knew you as the formal guy up there in front giving sermons. I didn't know that pastors could be funny. (laughs) Or normal. (laughs) The jury is probably still out on the normal thing, but... But on our last night in Mexico, when we all stood in a circle around the kids and kids could come up to leaders to pray... I had kid after kid after kid come up to me, put their arms around me, and I pray, embraced them, and we prayed together. One kid wept because he doesn't yet have the faith that he wants to have. One kid wept because she, she's afraid that she won't stay strong when she goes away to college next year. One kid wept because he wants to stay sober. And one kid came up to, to tell me that he had given his life to Christ that night, and he was so excited. And I wonder how many of those prayers would have happened if we hadn't framed walls together and barked at dogs together. They loved that. I don't know why, but they... We, we decided that they breed uh, Rottweilers and Chihuahuas together. That's the... And I named them Rottwawas. So um, I barked at all the Rottwawas as we drove by. If we hadn't framed walls together and barked at dogs together and done a Chinese fire drill in the middle of the street together, and if those little urchins hadn't attacked their innocent pastor in a hail of wet stucco... The best disciple-making you're going to do, if you're willing to obey Christ, is as you are going along in life. It's, it's still not easy. It can be risky. Just ask Jesus in Nazareth. Just ask Simon Cyrene, who ended up carrying the cross of Christ. I mean, it can be risky. But it is so much more real. And it is so rewarding. So, what would it look like for you to make disciples as you are going.